You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. history podcast that's not your history class, Betty Sodes, the little bits of history that don't quite fit in anywhere else, with me your host, Katie Charlwood, history harlot and reader of books. So I made this video on TikTok, like, for yonks ago, about how Diana, the Princess of Wales, had not been assassinated by the royal family for being too much of a problem, and that the conspiracy theory surrounding the crash is just, uh, one, ridiculous, and two... Completely improbable, almost impossible. Like, the variables, I mean, the variables alone are wild. See, back in my adolescence, I had garnered this unnatural obsession with celebrity deaths. And I was kind of into very macabre things. I still am for a lot of things. Um, Especially being someone who, you know, I'm a social scientist who teaches history on the internet. So, uh, clearly, dead people are kind of my thing. I do feel like losing three grandparents in the space of 11 months. For some reason I had it in my head it was 13, but it was 11. Like it was under a year I'd lost like three grandparents. Like it was fun, fun, fun. I mean, I was into dark history at the best of times. I mean, in fairness, most history isn't exactly fluffy and light. It's usually quite sad. But anyway, I got really into like famous deaths and things and I'd actually watched you know all the news come out about Diana's death at the time and you know I watched the funeral on TV I think I mentioned this um before I think I mentioned this in the Prince Philip so I grew up always knowing who Diana was and I was very aware of her death and I was very aware of everything going on and I'll admit I fell hook line and sinker into this whole conspiracy but one of the first things I remember being told when I was studying like history, psychology, sociology was that if you want to prove that something is correct, you have to try and prove that it's incorrect because it's all about internal bias and you have to try and work against your own bias because otherwise you could easily falsify data into, you know, falling into your way of thinking. And I was very much convinced that you know, 
the royals were involved and there was a massive conspiracy and all these kind of things and the more I looked into it and the more I tried to look for a rational explanation of A, B and C, the more I found it. Now, I don't expect everyone to agree with everything that I'm saying. You'll probably find some reason to disagree with me or some argument, but with this video that I posted ages ago, people started asking questions. Well, what about this and what about that? And a lot of it actually comes under misinformation. Um, kind of like the whole Mandela effect thing, when someone is presented with false information and then that false information is reinforced. I know I'm being really technical on this episode, aren't I? Normally I'm like, fuck this, bollocks that. But anyway, I was getting asked all these questions, so I started making a couple of videos on it. And then I thought, you know what, I'm being asked too many questions. I'm just going to make an episode and just work through the timeline and then um, hopefully answer the sort of conspiracy theories relating to it. Because a lot of mysteries, I find, have an explanation. I also find that most people are unhappy with those explanations, but that's neither here nor there. I'm going to tell you the events as I would any other historical event. And at the end, if I haven't already covered them, um, I'm going to go over the main conspiracy ideas as well. Are you sitting comfortably? Good. Then let's begin. It's a summer's day in the late 1900s and Diana, Princess of Wales, the former wife to the current King Charles III of England, she was out there divorcee, living her best life. You see, post-divorce Diana, she was firmly out with the firm's grasp. She had a shitty marriage, she was out of that, she had a decent divorce settlement, she was travelling the world, doing her charity work, and she had just spent the last eight days swanning about the Italian and French Riviera on a yacht owned by her lover, Dori Alfayette. So Dori Alfayette, he was an Egyptian film producer and son of millionaire, billionaire, Mohammed Alfayette. So after a short holiday in the Riviera, the two of them land in Paris on the 30th of August 1997. And they weren't even supposed to be in Paris that night. The initial plan was for Diana to go straight to England because she wanted to see William and Harry because they were about to start back at school. But Dodie wanted to stop off in Paris. So last minute change of plans, they decide to go there. What's weirder still is that being with Dodie was another last minute plan because she was supposed to go to Italy with her friend, but her friend's father died suddenly. So last minute, she's like, fuck it, I'll go see Dodie instead. You know, there's no harm in really wanting to get the most out of your summer. So they land in Paris and they try to go out to dinner, but they get swarmed by the paparazzi and they end up just trying to dine at the Hotel Ritz. So the Alfayeds, they owned the Hotel Ritz and Dodie also had an apartment on the Champs-Élysées. So they try and go out, it doesn't really work out because the paparazzi are just, they're just swarming like bees. So they decide, fuck this for a game of soldiers and decide to just dine at the Ritz. So they're in the dining room, they feel a bit weird because people keep looking at them, which, you know, I'm sorry, isn't really that surprising when A, your dad owns the hotel and B, you're a fucking princess. The people's princess, some might add. So, you know, people are going to look at you. I feel like, hey, if you go to a public place and you're that famous, people are probably going to notice you. Anyway, they go up to his suite for a bit and while they're up there, the paparazzi are still hanging out outside. 
So the head of security of the Hotel Ritz, Henri Paul, he is kind of being a dick to the photographers and stuff outside, which in fairness is very much part of his job. And also, he's from Paris. We kind of expect that. If you're not a little bit rude, are you really Parisian? And it probably doesn't help that he had two liqueur wines over the course of the evening. So instead of spending the night in the suite at the Hotel Ritz, uh, they decide that they're going to go to Dodi's apartment, which is just off the avenue in the Champs-Élysées. It was on the Rue Arsène-Lucet, I think. I probably butchered that pronunciation as well. But there are two cars sitting outside the hotel. So they are armoured Mercedes-Benz um, S-Class sedans. There's probably a more technical name than that. I, I don't know. I don't know vehicles. That's just not my thing. So there's one at the front of the hotel and there's one at the rear entrance of the hotel. So there are two cars. So the decoy car at the front of the hotel, it fucks off and about 30 or so photographers follow it. With the plan being that Dodie and Diana would be able to sort of escape out the back and not be noticed and go into their other armoured Mercedes, whatever. And... Their ruse had worked on some of the paps, but not all. So they were still being followed. So Dodie, Diana, Henri Paul and Trevor Reese jones who was one of the Alphayed's, like, protection team. Basically one of his bodyguards, right? So Paul and Reese jones they're in the front of the car and Dodie and Diana are in the back. Right, so you've got some reports that are saying that Reese jones was the only member of the car to be wearing a seatbelt. And then other reports are saying that nobody in the car was wearing a seatbelt. But anyway. So the car speeds away from the Rue Cambon, crosses the Place de la Concorde, goes down along the Cour la Reine and the Cour Albert, and then into the Pont d'Alma Tunnel. Now we can only assume that this direction was taken to like shake off paparazzi because this is nowhere near a direct route to Dodi's apartment. Like you're crossing the river. You, you shouldn't need to cross the river. So this car is speeding through the tunnel at twice the speed limit. The Alma Tunnel speed limit is 50 kilometers per hour. So that's 31, I think, miles per hour. And so they were going as 105 kilometers per hour, which is 65 miles per hour. So they are going double the speed they should through this fucking tunnel. And the driver loses control of the car hits a white Fiat, of all things, a Fiat. Now, I don't know much about cars, but Fiats are really not the sturdiest of uh, vehicles, especially when faced with a fucking armoured car. So this is only three minutes after they've left the hotel. So, 12.23, he's going to the tunnel, hits the Fiat, swerves to, like, the left of this two-lane carriageway, and fucking head first, the car hits into this um, pillar. It's the 13th pillar that um, supports the roof of the tunnel because they don't have guardrails. Or at least they didn't then. I'm not sure if they do now. So after smacking head first into this, the car spins and then hits the wall backwards. And even though it's an armoured car, like the front of this is smushed. I, I don't want to say like an accordion. It's like if you got a Coke can and you just crush it in your hands. Like, it, it looks like you've just woofed the thing in. Like, it does not look like an armoured vehicle. Um, but I suppose that's what happens when it hits a motherfucking pillar. 
So this entire time, the car is being followed by paparazzi on motorbikes. So they were obviously travelling a wee bit slower. So when as they come upon the scene, um, paparazzi, they kind of break into two groups. You have one kind who rush in and are trying to help because there's smoke coming from the vehicle and they're worried the thing's just going to... Probably they're worried it's going to explode because movies um, make people think that cars explode when really they just go on fire. And the other half of... Or I'm maybe not sure if it's half, but another group of the paparazzi just stood there taking photos of the incident with at least one photographer getting his ass kicked. Like he gets the shit kicked out of him because he's standing there taking photos instead of doing something to help. And I think like five photographers end up being arrested that night, all in all. So at half past 12, so it's 30 minutes after midnight, seven minutes after the crash has occurred, the police are on the scene. So the French police are there and the ambulance arrives five minutes later. But just like the witnesses and paparazzi before them, they cannot get into this fucking car. In the meantime, however, police manage to arrest some photographers and then confiscate um, cameras and film. After all this, by the way, just so you know, the police end up impounding like a bunch of these paparazzi's vehicles, you know, as evidence and whatnot. So the fire brigade land on the scene and the only way to get anyone out of the vehicle is to cut open the roof to remove them. So inside the car you've got four occupants really. You've got Diana who is on the floor huddled and crying. She's in shock. You've got Dodi Al-Fayed who is clearly dead. You have the driver Henry Paul who also appears to be deceased. And then you've got Trevor Reese jones who is, he's visibly injured. He looks severely injured, but he's, like, to look at him, he looks like he is in a far worse condition than Diana is. And so for about 30 minutes, Diana is trapped in a car wreck with two corpses and one severely injured person. The firefighters manage to cut open the roof and then remove Diana from the vehicle. So Diana, she's conscious. I mean, she is very clearly in shock and definitely disorientated, but like her wounds, they all seem very superficial because the ones you see are like a little minor head wound and it just seems like nothing, right? So they have to sedate her because she's in shock. So, you know, people are trying to grab her, they're trying to help her and she's like pushing people away because again, she's just been in a fucking car accident. And there are some paps still trying to take photos of her. So there's a doctor on the scene and he's like, this woman is clearly in shock and they try to, you know, put a drip in her arm and she just starts shouting like random shit. It's very incoherent and she rips the drip from her own arm, you know, because she's not, I mean, you're not compass mentis at that point, are you? Because again, fucking car accident. So because she is clearly disturbed and, you know, they need to be able to check what injury she has because... Even though she doesn't have any visible injuries, they know that being in any kind of collision, there's probably going to be some kind of damage there. So they sedate her and at 1am, she goes into cardiac arrest. Her heart stops. The ambulance team performs CPR, they get her heart beating again and then they move her into the ambulance at 1.18am, so 18 minutes after the cardiac arrest. Now I need you to remember that this is France. 
Paris, France, and that wherever you are, your um, emergency responders might have a different way of doing things. And when incidents like this happens, a specialised ambulance is sent to the scene. Now, it's effectively an emergency room on wheels, and it's not only staffed by like paramedics and first responders, there's like a triage emergency doctor on board. So what they try and do is stabilise her, so they have to get her ventilated, they have to get everything going, they have to make sure she is stable um, before they travel. So her blood pressure drops and they're really worried she's going to have another cardiac arrest. Because at this point they are unaware of all of the internal injuries that she has sustained and the impact of the crash. So yes, at 1.18am she is moved into the ambulance, they make sure she is stable, that she's on her ventilator, all that kind of stuff. And when they feel that she is stable enough to travel, they leave at 1.41am. Now, they tell the driver of the ambulance to drive slowly because there are some things you just cannot do when you're being jostled around the back of an ambulance down a road in Paris. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Was the Sphinx 10,000 years old? Were there serial killers in ancient Greece and Rome? What were the lives of transgender, intersex, and non-binary people like in the ancient world? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. We tell you true stories and tall tales of the ancient world. Sometimes we do it tipsy. Sometimes we have amazing guests on our show. Historians like Barry Strauss, podcasters like Liv Albert, Mike Duncan, and authors like Joanne Harris and Ben Aronovich. We take you to the top of Hadrian's Wall to watch the Roman Empire fall at the end of the world. We walk the catacombs beneath the Temple of the Feathered Serpent under Teotihuacan. We walk the sacred spirals of the Nazca Lines in search of ancient secrets. And we explore mythology from ancient cultures around the world. Come find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. So they're driving slowly and they have a police escort so that they can basically go down the road without there being any obstructions. And as they're approaching the hospital, Diana's blood pressure drops again and she goes into cardiac arrest. So they have to pull over at the Jardin des Plantes. So the ambulance pulls over and they, you know, after making sure she's stable again, they then continue their journey to the Petit-Sulpetier Hospital. And they arrive at the hospital at 2.06am. And that was 25 minutes. So it took the ambulance 25 minutes to leave the scene, restart her heart, you know, stop on the way we start her heart, and then get to the hospital. 25 minutes. Now I looked this up on Google Maps, right? The average drive time from the tunnel to the hospital is 22 minutes. Which in fairness is pretty good going. And it's only when she's lying on the operating table do they realise how fucking bad these internal injuries are. So because Diana was sitting kind of like sideways in the car when the, the impact happened, her right ribs and arm were fractured. 
and then her collarbone, her right collarbone was dislocated. She also had bruising and swelling of the brain. There was, I think, a gash on her thigh. And then there's the organs. So several organs had been displaced because of the, you know, smack, the sudden deceleration of the car. And of course, the force in which she was hurtled against that front passenger seat. Her heart was over on the right side of her chest. So the heart is usually kind of slightly to the left. It's not really that far left. It's like left of center. But her heart had been like displaced over to the right. And this had caused an aortic tear. So basically her pulmonary vein was just fucking ripped, right? Which caused her to bleed out into her chest cavity. So she was just internally bleeding. So for over 50 minutes, the staff at the hospital, they are trying to keep her alive. You have staff constantly massaging her heart while they're trying to clamp this, um, the pulmonary vein. They're trying to stop the bleeding, they're trying to repair it. And, you know, they're doing the shocks, they're doing it all, but nothing is working. They're not, it's, it's a lost cause, effectively. Like, so for over 50 minutes, they work on her and it's clear she's not going to be revived. And at 3 a.m. on the 31st of August, 1997, Diana, Princess of Wales, is pronounced dead with her death being officially announced three hours later at a conference outside the hospital. So Diana's body is brought back to England with her sisters, her ex-husband, and it goes for a post-mortem. And naturally with a post-mortem, you know, there's blood tests and examinations and everything like that. So Diana's blood's come back and the tests come back and everything is fairly normal. Like, for her, everything's typical, you know? So because Dodie Al-Fayed and... Henri Paul were pronounced dead at the scene, they were removed from the wreckage and then taken directly to the Paris mortuary. Because it's procedure. You don't take dead bodies to hospital, you take the dead bodies to the mortuary. So the driver, as it turns out, his blood alcohol level was three and a half times the French legal limit. So it was, what was it, 1.7 grams per litre of blood? And they also discovered that he was on antidepressants and antipsychotic medication, which are not really meant to be taken with alcohol, um, for obvious reasons. So Mohammed Al-Fayed, Dodi's father, he gets this British pathologist to challenge the blood alcohol level. So the French authorities do one test, the British pathologist does another test, and so they do a third test. The French authorities, they do a third test where they have to stick a needle into the eyeball of the deceased and they take the vitreous liquid out of it, out of the vitreous humour, as opposed to the aqueous humour, which are the only two things I can remember about the eyeball. I just like the fact that it's called humour. Anyway, so they take the liquid out of the eyeball, the eyeball juice, if you will, and they test it and it not only confirms the, you know, the blood alcohol level, but it also confirms the traces of antidepressants. I think the driver had in total um, at least five measures of um, uh, Ricard, which is this licorice flavoured liqueur, it's aperitif. And honestly, that sounds pretty nice, actually. Um, I like licorice, all right? I like licorice. It was also discovered that he had CO2 in his bloodstream. So 
uh, was it a 12.8% carbon monoxide saturation, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, if I remember the number, I'm very proud of myself because numbers and I usually don't get on. Now, this isn't too unusual because smokers in general have about a 10% saturation um, and his was 12.8. Now, they think there's the possibility of it being that little bit higher is because of the sudden impact of the crash, it basically kept the CO2 in his body instead of, like, releasing it out. But even so, he had been smoking these um little cigarellos. They're like these wee cigars. I actually think I smoked one of them once back in my teens. Don't smoke. It's bad for you. Your teeth get fucked up. Everything smells. Everything's yellow. Ew. Just ew. And also ick. Now, Dodie... Dodie's injuries are actually fairly simple compared to everybody else. Um, His ribs basically caved in and pierced his lungs and organs. Like... Like that. That's... Not that difficult. Um, and then Reese Jones, he was the only survivor. So Trevor Reese Jones is the only survivor of the crash. And one, he has no memory of it. And to be honest, maybe he doesn't want to remember it. Or maybe it's, you know, a trauma response. Or maybe he does remember it, but he just doesn't want to fucking talk about it. Who's to say? I mean, he did write a book afterwards with a ghostwriter. But that's neither here nor there. So there's this rumour that Reese Jones has actually lost his tongue in the accident. But um, he, it's basically his entire jaw has to get reattached, realigned, refixed, something. His jaw is just fucked up. So it gets put back together and Muhammad Al-Fayed pays for all of his hospital care and treatment. Right? But like the injuries to his like mouth and throat and everything were so bad that he actually could only speak in a whisper. So he tend to just kind of whisper things or write things down. Now, he does end up writing his book a few years later, but he says he only did it because, you know, he was getting accused of not doing his job and all this kind of stuff and he wanted to clear his name and probably wanted to make a wee bit of money on the side. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. So there's an investigation and an inquest and then another investigation and, you know, one country does an investigation and the other country does an investigation. And the results from these inquests, investigations, etc, etc, is that Diana, Princess of Wales, died because a driver under the influence drove into a concrete tunnel at 105 kilometres per hour in a car where no one was wearing a seatbelt. So let's get into conspiracy time. Now, a lot of these actually stem from Mohammed Al-Fayed, Dodi's father. And he is very public and very open about it. He's also had, like, pathologists and inquests and investigations happen. And one of the first things he, he comes up with is that Diana and Dodi were engaged and that she was pregnant with his child. Now, as part of Operation Page, Paget, Paget? I'm not entirely sure of the pronunciation. So because of Muhammad Al-Fayed's claims, Diana has to get tested for everything. Her body, her blood, everything gets tested. So there is no sign of pregnancy either in her ovary and her womb. She also has no trace of the HCG hormone, which is a hormone that your body produces when you're pregnant, in case you didn't know. It's basically the hormone that is in your pee when you pee on the stick 
on a pregnancy test. So there's none of that in her body. And they also discover that Diana was on birth control. Like she was on birth control. Um, so she was definitely trying not to be pregnant. And there's no evidence that backs up the engagement thing. Now Dodie did purchase a ring for her. Um, but her friends say that it was a friendship ring. That Diana had said it was a friendship ring and was not at all an engagement ring. But here's the thing, if Diana was planning on getting engaged, fine. Maybe she didn't want to tell people, also fine. But she definitely wasn't pregnant, so we know that much. Then of course we have the mysterious Fiat Uno, the white Fiat that the car hit on its way in. Now, maybe the car didn't have insurance, maybe the driver was doing something dodgy, maybe they were scared fucking shitless because they got hit by another car, and you don't really have insurance in certain roads in Paris. Then, of course, we have the mysterious white Fiat Uno, which um, Mohammed Al-Fayed said was driven by MI6 and was deliberately there to cause the crash, which um, nobody knew what route they were taking. And... Okay, now, I don't know what it's like in the Pont d'Alma tunnel, but there's one roundabout. There's a roundabout in France, in Paris. Uh, I think it's around the Arc de Triomphe. I could be wrong. And there's, like, no insurance on it. Like, if something happens there, like, you're fucked. Like, uh, I don't know if you've ever driven through Paris or been a passenger through Paris. It's fucking terrifying. Um, if you can do it, good for you. It scares me shitless. And, like, there's a fucking ton of reasons why a car wouldn't stop after being hit by another car. Uh, insurance, doing something dodgy at that time of night. Somebody could have been out having an affair with somebody and travelling in. You know what I mean? There could have been any fucking number of reasons. But somebody could have stole their parents' car, you know, and been like, fuck, fuck. Now, I can't fully explain the existence of the Fiat Uno or where it went, but first of all, if I'm going after an armoured car, I think a Fiat Uno is um, more likely to turn into an accordion than, say, something stronger. Also, the car that Diana was in wasn't even supposed to be going in that direction. So the fact that a car would be coming towards it when it's going a completely different route than it should be on doesn't really make sense. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't add up. But if you want to obsess over Fiat Uno, you can obsess over Fiat Uno, just whatever. Oh, I have a helper for this one. So one of the things was... CCTV. That's right, CCTV. So one of the questions was, why did none of these cameras pick up... Okay, no problem. Why did none of these cameras pick up the the car as it travelled from the hotel to the crash site? So they picked the 10 cameras along the route that they thought would have seen something. But these cameras were owned by individual businesses, not by the city of Paris. So the cameras were pointed at the entrances of their buildings which is why they didn't pick up, you know, the car along the road. Now, there was a camera which could have seen something at the entrance to the Pont d'Alma tunnel. But it was turned off. Traffic monitoring camera was run by the Compagnie de Circulation Urbaine de Paris. Paris Urban Traffic Unit. And their department that ran it, it 
closed down at 11pm every single night. So that camera just wasn't on after 11pm. It wasn't monitored, there was no recordings. And this was typical of the time. Like, it was the same for every camera in that tunnel ran by the Paris traffic unit. So Mohammed Al-Fayed, he was really pushing a lot of these sort of conspiracy theories. Although to him, I don't think they were a conspiracy. To me, it just seems like a grieving dad who's lost his son. He was so sad. And he's really been pushing this idea that MI6 was charged by the royal family to get rid of Diana and Dodie. Um, well, Dodie was more by extension. Collateral damage, if you will. But the royal family doing this doesn't really make any sense. I mean, apart from the fact if anybody was involved in this, the amount of dominoes you would have to have, like, in a row, all your ducks in a row, that's, I'm not mixing metaphors, and the amount of things you'd have to have in place, the amount of people that would have to be involved, I mean, not only is it logistical nightmare, but someone at some point would have spilled the beans. There is no way you could have the amount of people you would need to have involved because you would need to have a backup plan and your backup plans would need backup, backup, backups. You would need to have so many things because again, all of the variables. Because one, they weren't meant to be in Paris. This was Dodie's idea. They would have to have suddenly all of these agents working in tandem in this location, even though she was supposed to be in a different fucking country at that point. Like, there was no reason for her to be there. You've also got the fact that Diana was very much pushed as the people's princess, the princess of the people, by her having a horrific accident. Um, anything that could even remotely put suspicious on the royals, on Charles, on all of that, it just makes them look really bad. The farm may not be short of faux pas or two, but they're not bloody stupid. They're not that bloody stupid, I should say. Because why would they orchestrate an event which could very easily paint Charles as the villain? Like, what's the point? Diana's premature death, especially something that was in that kind of spectacle, that was always going to put the focus and the blame back on Charles and, again, turn him into the bad guy. And not that he was the best guy. Now, to me, there is a wee bit of a difference between a really awful, crappy, cheating husband and... And a stone-cold killer. That's right, baby. That's right. But at the end of the day, it just doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. And, you know, it's a tragic, horrific accident. And sometimes bad stuff just happens. And you do accept that bad stuff happens. And that not everything is orchestrated. Not everything is some massive conspiracy. Sometimes bad things just happen because... You're famous, and people are chasing you, and you're not wearing a seatbelt, and your driver isn't being careful. And you go headfirst into a concrete pillar. You know, it's not good. But yeah, that's the end. That's the end of the story. And if you liked this telling of basic factual information, then you should rate and review. How many stars should they give me? Bye. That's right. You don't want to upset the child now, do you? No, you have to give me five stars now. 
and say good things. Anything. You don't, have to, you don't even have to say good things. You can say mean things as long as you give me five stars. I'll take it. I will actually read a review if you've got a five star on it. If you've got a one star, I just won't read you and I won't listen. So the best thing to do is just give me five. <laughs> will that work? Is that convincing enough? Yes. No, I don't usually do recommendations on the Biddy Swords, but I have been listening to a Game of Thrones fan cast for season eight. I think it's like 10 episodes. I'm not all the way through yet. But so far, it is so good. Like, I, it, it, it is devastating and upsetting and perfect. Like, it does all the things I wanted. It is showing me characters the way I wanted them to like grow and evolve and do the good and the bad things and the morally grey things and it's just so much better written than the actual last season of Game of Thrones like it's wild it's so good so if you haven't listened to it I think it's currently trending on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and like the TV and, and movies section and the podcasts go listen to it it is completely non-profit it is just a work of fan fiction and it's amazing sorry my voice is is barely lasting this entire episode don't forget you can follow me on all the social medias i am on tiktok i am on twitter i am on instagram you will either find me under who did what now pod or who did what now pd on twitter or even the history harlot i'm everywhere now i am gonna bid you all Farewell. And someone else has something they want to say to you before we say goodbye. I love you all. You're the best. Did you hear that? You're the best. Adios. Au revoir. Have we to zen, my friends. Bye bye. Bye bye. We've all been there. You're standing in a museum, staring at a painting, and all you can think is, I don't get it. To me, knowing the story behind an artwork is a huge part of knowing how to look at it. I'm Amanda, the host of the Art of History podcast, where we view history through the lens of some really great works of art. Each episode, we dive deep into the bigger picture behind some familiar and maybe not so familiar pieces. Check out Art of History now wherever you get your podcasts.